Well, we're back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, so turn there in your Bibles. And today the Apostle Paul will use a very famous Old Testament passage about gathering manna in order to encourage the Corinthian church to give to their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are experiencing persecution and a famine. So imagine that, going to the Old Testament about a passage about manna in order to encourage people to give. And people think the Old Testament isn't relevant. Paul goes straight to Exodus chapter 16 to point to a bunch of people gathering manna in the early morning hours in order to encourage the Corinthians to give. I love that about Paul. Most preachers would go to Malachi 3 if they're going to dip back into the Old Testament to talk about giving. They hit Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. They probably would not dip all the way back to Exodus. That's way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, but not Paul. He goes straight to manna, not Malachi. He goes straight to Exodus 16 where God's manna was new every morning. And what we'll see today is that the manna of Exodus chapter 16 and the offering being taken up for the poor Jerusalem churches is another reminder to us that if God gave us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave us Jesus, won't he and Jesus take care of our needs? Now, obviously, if you know the Bible, I stole that big idea straight out of Romans chapter 8, which says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The argument of Romans chapter 8 verse 32 is this. If God did the hardest thing in the world, giving up his own beloved son to die on our behalf and for our sins, and if he did that as a gift, a free gift to us, then it will be easy and logical for him to give us everything we need in Christ. If he gave us Jesus, it's a no-brainer that God will provide everything that we ever need. And now following on the heels of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which we looked at two weeks ago, I think that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians in this passage, in the rest of the paragraph. If they finish taking up the offering for the Jerusalem church then they don't need to worry about what they might lose by giving away their money because God will graciously provide them with all things because he did not spare his own son Jesus but gave him up for us all. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verse 10 and hear the word of the Lord. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you. Let's stop there. Paul gives the Corinthians his personal thoughts on this whole matter of giving to the poor churches in Jerusalem. He says that it will benefit the Corinthians to do so. 
But how in the world could, give, could giving away their money benefit them? When you give your money away, how does that benefit you? You're losing your money. How does giving up some of your hard-earned money benefit you if you give it away to someone else? Answer, it would benefit the Corinthians to give away their money because they would receive something when they gave, namely joy. They would be blessed by giving away their money. That's probably typically not how we think about it. If I give away my money, I will be blessed. Usually, if I give away my money, it's going to hurt. Paul says something like this when he quotes Jesus in Acts chapter 20. He says, in all things, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders here, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You've probably heard that before, and you probably hear it a lot in the month of December, don't you? Around Christmas. Well, who said it? Jesus said it. Where did he say it? In the Gospels? No. He said it in the book of Acts when Paul retweeted him, when he quoted him. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is reminding the Ephesian elders to help the poor, and if they struggled to do that, he told them to remember the words of Jesus. And that means that when you don't want to serve someone, or you don't want to minister to someone, or when you don't want to give away your money or give away your time, and we all struggle with that, don't we? Remember, remember that it is a blessing for you, there's a blessing in it for you, namely, more joy in God. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that, not some prosperity preacher on TV who promises you a big house and six brand new fancy cars. So when you give or serve or care or love or minister to someone in any capacity, which is really what this passage is about, it benefits you because you get not the money promised you by some prosperity preacher on TV. You get the joy promised to you by Jesus, the joy that comes when you get to be a blessing to others. You get the joy that you get to join God on mission. It benefits you because it is more blessed to give than to receive. You get to experience the joy that, as we saw several weeks ago, that God loves to show his kindness to his children through his children. You get to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ. God loves to bless his kids through his kids. So let's personalize it this morning. God loves to bless his kids through you. Wow. God could just drop blessings down on us and bypass us, but the joy of ministry is that we get to be middlemen. The joy of ministry is that God wants to use you to bless people uh, at Rehoboth Christian School when you drop off school supplies or gift cards. Or when you pray for our team as they go to Denver. It's God blessing other people through you because God loves to bless his kids through his kids. The joy of ministry is that we get to be middlemen and God loves to bless and knock 
the socks off of his kids through you. You get to be a part of that when you give to help others. Okay, back to verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So Paul's reminding the Corinthians that a year ago they desired and determined to give to the suffering church in Jerusalem. They started collecting money, pulling their resources, and it has been sitting in this designated fund in their church bank account. And now Paul calls on them to finish the collection and to cut a check to the Jerusalem church. And he's sending a few men that we'll look at next week to the church to pick up the check. Paul wants their readiness, he says here, to be matched by their completing the offering. As he says in verse 11, out of what you have. That phrase, out of what you have, is very important when we talk about giving. Two observations about it. Number one, they are to give out of what they have, not out of what they do not have. In other words, their giving should be proportionate to their wealth. Paul And God does not command us to give beyond our means, but it is permissible to do so if we want to. Obviously, the Macedonians gave beyond their means that we saw several weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 8. Secondly, they're to give out of what they have, not what they will have one day. Some Some people claim not to give because one day they will make enough money to be able to give. And so that's when they will give. Like when they finally get enough money, now I'll be able to give. These people treat giving like having kids. Some people say, oh, we'll start having kids when we can afford to have kids. Well, guess what? You'll never be able to afford to have kids. Can I get an amen? (laughs) We give out of what we have now not what we hope to have one day. And what God asks of us is to give according to our means out of what we have. If we want, we may give more. We might decide to sacrifice cable TV or daily trips to Starbucks or sacrifice going to the movies or sacrifice eating out at restaurants in order to give more. We may feel the Spirit is leading us in that way. You may desire to give beyond your means. Not everyone will always sense that. But God does expect every Christian to give according to their means, out of what they have. Now we'll talk more about numbers and percentages in a few weeks when we get to chapter 9. And you might be surprised, but just put that on hold for right now. Paul is telling the Corinthians that if they have abundance now, then that should supply the need for those in Jerusalem. And then if the day comes and the Jerusalem churches are getting along well and the Corinthians need help, then the Jerusalem church will help pick up the slack. This is what the gospel produces in church families. We help those who need help and they in turn help us when we need help. But remember, Paul never uses guilt 
to motivate them to give, right? A lot of preachers do that. Man, they just hammer home the guilt. And what do you think? When you hear a preacher guilting you into giving, does it make you want to give? No, right? Paul never uses guilt. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed to the gospel right before this in verse 9 in order to stir up their desire to give. And that should always be where any discussion of giving starts. Any discussion, discussion of giving should always start with the gospel, with God giving his son up on the cross for sinners like us. All giving should, should be rooted in the gospel, not guilt. All giving should be rooted in the cross, not in a calculator. Giving should be a response to the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, not a response to a ratio of income levels. And when we give, however much we give, we must always ask ourselves this question as we give. If God gave us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we give money to any church or ministry, we trust that if God gave us his son, won't he also, along with Jesus, give us all that we need? If he sent Jesus to die a brutal, bloody death on the cross for our sins, won't he help us with our groceries? Won't he take care of us? As Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we ask God for a fish, is he going to give us a snake? If we ask for an egg... Is he going to give a scorpion? If we ask him for the Holy Spirit, won't God give him? In other words, if we take care of our children and love them so much and would do anything for them, won't God take care of us? If he gave us Jesus and gave us the Holy Spirit, will he not meet our basic needs? Listen, I've been serving Jesus for about 45 years since I was a very small child. I've never starved. In 45 years, I've never starved. He's always provided. But then Paul directs the Corinthians to Scripture, which is where every conversation about money should go, right? Here's what's crazy about all of this. What's Paul's go-to verse on giving? It might surprise you. You might just say, what? Look at verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. So Paul quotes Exodus 16, verse 18, where the Israelites gathered manna, and as they gathered manna, they said, what is this stuff? So Paul's go-to verse on giving is straight out of Exodus chapter 16. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that a bunch of manna gatherers could inspire them to give. 
when Paul discusses giving, he's like, I've got to hightail it to the Old Testament if I'm going to talk about giving. So he points to this passage in Exodus 16 to remind the Corinthians that every Israelite roaming in the wilderness had what they needed. God provided for them. Manna hoarding was not allowed because Yahweh wanted his people to learn to trust him, to trust that he would provide. They could only gather uh, each day what was sufficient for that day. To gather extra manna for the next day was not allowed, except they could do that on, they could double up on the day before the Sabbath because you couldn't work on the Sabbath. But if they tried to hoard the manna, it would breed worms and stink. I mean, overnight, you're thinking, I'm going to keep a little bit extra in case I don't get enough tomorrow. You wake up in the morning, worms everywhere, and man, did it smell up your tent. Through this, the Israelites had to learn to trust that Yahweh was faithful, and the proof of that was that no one lacked anything. So to encourage the Corinthians to give money, he tells them how God gave manna. He points to the giving of manna to prompt them to release some of their money. And so the Israelites in Exodus 16, roaming in the wilderness, may not have known what manna was, but they could know that Yahweh was faithful. Every single morning he provided, his mercies and his manna were new every morning. And Paul picks up on this verse in Exodus to remind the Corinthians that they will be taken care of if they give some of their money to the poor in Jerusalem. He's reminding them that they live in a fathered world and they will be taken care of and that God will supply everything that they need. And Christian, he will do the same thing for you. You live in a fathered world too. Yes, we will undergo trials This passage is not denying that. Paul's been talking about suffering the whole time, right? We will suffer. Life is hard. This paragraph is not denying any of those realities. Romans 8 is not denying any of those realities. Where we got our big idea. If God gave us Jesus, he's going to take care of us. And then right after that, Paul says, we are sheep waiting to be slaughtered every day. The sword is at our neck. He's not denying any of those realities at all. But the promises in God's word come into those realities, come into the places where we suffer, and the promises of God call the shots. Understand this. The promises of God in Scripture are calling the shots in your life, not your circumstances. Your circumstances are not that powerful. Your problems are not defining your life. God's promises are defining your life. In fact, your problems, my problems, which feel so heavy and so weighty, right? They are no match for God's promises. And so this passage really isn't about money, is it? Even though preachers go here when they want to build a new building. Got to go to Rome, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 9 if we're going to get people to give money. This really isn't a passage about money, is it? It's a passage about trusting God's promises. Verse 15 is in the Bible to tell us 
that we can trust our Heavenly Father just like the nation of Israel trusted Yahweh as they roamed through the wilderness. We can trust our Heavenly Father even when we struggle, even when we suffer. Whether we have much or whether we have little, He never changes. Our finances may change. Our life situation may change. He never changes and therefore we can trust Him. So let this paragraph, man, verse 15, I've just been thinking, gosh, this is becoming one of my favorite verses. And it's not like a verse that people underline and memorize, is it? As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. That's not like one of those verses you're like, this is my life verse. But man, I, I've been, as I've been meditating on this last several weeks, I've been thinking, man, I like this verse. Let this paragraph in verse 15 assure your heart this morning and then let it cause you to pray out of this world prayers. Let this paragraph cause you to begin to anticipate and expect God to move in your life and to blow your socks off. Christian, you serve a God who can make manna fall from the sky every single morning for 40 years. Think about that. God provided manna, whatever it was, kind of like coriander seed, flake-like substance, didn't really know what it was. God provided manna every single morning for the nation of Israel. I mean, who does something so weird and wild, and crazy, and so out of the box. Who is this God that we worship? He's creative, that's for sure. Hmm, how will I provide for them? I could build a Costco, but I think I'm going to let this stuff called manna just appear on the ground every morning for 40 years. And the God of Exodus 16 is your God too, Christian. You may need to rub some manna into your pores this morning. I wish we had some. I think we'd serve it up with communion. Replace that little dry cracker thing and you'd lift up the cup and find some manna in there. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't our God amazing? Isn't he wild and crazy? I mean, this is vintage Jesus here in Exodus chapter 16. New morning manna for hungry Israelites. This is miracle. 40 years of food. 40 years. Every morning, there it was. 14,240 days of miracle. And provision for poor Christians in Jerusalem via poor Christians in Macedonia is miracle too. This is all just vintage Jesus providing for his people. It's just what he does. He meets our needs and he often does it in surprising, head-scratching ways. As I was reading through the sermon manuscript last night, I remembered this entry into our seminary journal when we were in seminary in, in Dallas, at Dallas Seminary. And we were dirt poor like most seminary students and Went doing master's degree full-time, working at Starbucks 25 hours a week. Both Heather and I were walk, taking any sort of odd job that we could get. You know, you pay me $20 to do that, I'll take it. I mean, we were dirt poor, struggling. 
And so here's a few examples from my journal. I've read these years ago in one of the sermons. Um, four, here's what it says. 14 February. We are broke. Waiting for our paycheck so we can buy groceries. I'm gonna, man, I'm going to tear up. Trying to pray more specifically about our needs. Did you catch the date? We were broke on Valentine's Day. <laughs> 15 February. God answered our prayers. There was a ton of leftover pizza from church. Dinner provided. Get paid tomorrow. 17 February. We have $170 to last until next payday. So we just paid all these bills. We got $170 left. Praying he provides. 18 February. God provides. A letter came in the mail today stating that we had overpaid the doctor on one of our visits with the kids. We will be getting a $100 check this week. God is faithful. That's your God too. God is full of surprises. You have to know that about him. You have to know that he will often knock your socks off with the way that he answers your prayers. He's not boring for sure. This passage actually makes me want to pray wild prayers. Does it you? This passage strengthens my faith and my trust in Jesus. This passage makes me want to pray out of this world prayers and expect God to answer in his time and in his way. And that's important to remember. He's going to answer in his time. He's going to answer in his way. And so what are you waiting for? This is your God, Christian. Let's start praying some wild and very detailed prayers and just leaving it with Jesus. Doesn't this idea of Jesus doing crazy things like providing manna or using a poor church to bless a poor church, doesn't that make you want to shout? This is discipleship 101. This is what we should be passing on to new disciples as they come to faith. Jesus uses creative and wild and imaginative ways to meet the needs of his people. Sometimes it's manna. And sometimes it's dirt poor Christians providing for dirt poor Christians. I love that about Jesus. He answers our prayers. He meets our needs. And he often does it in surprising ways. This passage is telling us, and it's wooing us, and it's beckoning us. And this passage, verse 15, is triple dog daring us to stick our necks out and trust Jesus no matter what we see with our eyes. It's calling us to expect the God of new morning manna to surprise us with his goodness. After all, who are we dealing with here? Has Jesus ever given us reason to doubt his goodness? I mean, imagine being a church where instead of stressing out, we stressed the wild and crazy faithfulness of the manna providing God. Let me say it again. Imagine being a church where instead of stressing out about things, we stress the wild and crazy faithfulness of the manna providing God. What if we raised our kids in this church to not stress over things, but instead we stress to them that you can trust Jesus. I don't know how he's going to come through. I see your need. I see your problem. But let me tell you this much. Buddy, you can trust Jesus. Did that with one of my kids over the last several weeks. 
needed something. And I said, pray to Jesus, pray to Jesus. After several days of, what's going to happen? Boom, God provided and answered perfectly. What if we started stressing to our children that they can trust Jesus because he does crazy things like rain down manna in the middle of the night while we are sleeping? What if the next generation's knee-jerk reaction was, hey, let's pray about this situation. Let's not panic. Let's not freak out. Remember, Jesus made manna appear. I wonder what he'll do for us in this situation. I can't wait to see how he's going to knock our socks off. Wouldn't it be great to see your kids react like that? Their knee-jerk reaction is, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to tell Jesus about it and leave it with him because he's far more creative than I am about solving problems. And he'll probably do it in a way that, you know, totally knocks my socks off. So I'm just going to pray about it and give it to him and move on with my life. Wouldn't it be great to raise our kids that way? So let's create a church culture of expectancy here where we just anticipate Jesus providing for us in crazy and also in very ordinary ways. He does that sometimes too. Sometimes he just answers in very ordinary ways. We have the very ordinary means of grace, preaching of the word of God, prayer, communion, baptism, church discipline, very ordinary means of his grace, of his strengthening. So he does both. But when we create and we cultivate this kind of church culture here at Grace, when we talk about what God might do, we talk about how he's faithful, how he has all kinds of provision at his disposal for all kinds of situations, when we create a culture of expectancy instead of a culture of negativity and fear and grumbling, then we will strengthen our spiritual muscles so that we as a church family and you as an individual disciple can learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Listen, we serve a loving, faithful, all-powerful, sovereign God who is absolutely committed to his children. Maybe somebody here today needs that reminder. He is absolutely committed to us. Rub that into your pores today. Who can understand these wild and crazy commitments that God makes to his people, especially when things get dark or seem hopeless, like Exodus 16 or a poor church in Jerusalem? Ed Welch says, God prefers the impossible. Although he often cares for our needs before we know we have them, his mighty acts are showcased best against the backdrop of insurmountable odds. The nation of Israel, roaming in the wilderness, with no Costco in sight, was an impossible situation with insurmountable odds. The dirt poor church in Jerusalem experiencing famine and persecution for their faith was an impossible situation with insurmountable odds. 
And some of you today are right smack dab in the middle of some insurmountable odds right now. And things are dark and things seem hopeless and you just need some hope. Well, guess what? Jesus prefers the impossible. He's comfortable with the impossible. We're not. He's not allergic to impossible situations. He's actually comfortable and thrives in impossible situations. He specializes in them. He does his best work in impossible situations with his reputation on the line. And that means that you can trust him with whatever is going on in your life right now. Now, Why? Well, ask yourself this question as you go through what you're going through right now in your life. If God gave us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Whenever you go through whatever it is that you ever go through, ask yourself, if God gave Jesus up for my sins, won't he and Jesus graciously give me whatever it is that I need? If you struggle to believe that today, may I recommend you pray this little prayer from Mark 9.24. I believe, help my unbelief. You can pray that, can't you? I believe, help my unbelief. And he will. Listen, God loved us so much that he gave up his son Jesus for our sin. His grace, his unmerited favor. It's amazing. Listen, don't ever fail to be astonished by this good news. May it rekindle your awe this morning. I mean, it's one thing for manna to fall from the sky and to feed thousands and thousands of people and to keep doing it for 40 years, day after day after day. But it's another thing to have the eternal Son of God come down and die in your place for your sins. That, my friends, is wild and crazy and out of this world. He gave up his son to suffering just for you. Now, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give you all things? So connect the dots. If he gave up his only son to die in your place on the cross when you were his enemy, won't he take care of you now that you are his beloved child? He's adopted you into his family. He chose you. He says, I want you in my family. Do you think he's going to turn his back on you now? You were the worst kid in the orphanage. And God said, "Mm, I'll take that one over there. Really? Yeah, I want that guy. You were the worst kid in the orphanage dead in your trespasses and sin. And God the Father said, I want that one. He's not going to turn his back on you now. Let's let these words from Puritan John Flavel, he's commenting on Romans 8, let him prepare our hearts for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. They're a little wordy in a Puritan-esque way, but see if you can get what he's saying. He says, how is it imaginable that God should withhold after this, the giving of Jesus, how, the, how could he withhold spirituals or temporals from his people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, 
feed them, protect, and deliver them. Surely, if he would not spare this own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people for whose sakes all this was suffered, withhold any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. What freedom it is to know that nothing for my ultimate good will ever be withheld because of what Christ accomplished for me on the cross. And it's all of grace. Nothing for your ultimate good will God ever withhold from you. So today when you eat and drink in a moment as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Ask yourself, if God gave us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave us Jesus. How crazy is that? Infinitely glorious and holy God gave his son for people like us. How out of this world is that? I hope the gospel knocks your socks off this morning. I hope you leave here trusting your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to celebrate your life, death, resurrection, and ascension this morning in the Lord's Supper, we do take a moment to humble ourselves and to confess our sins and to cry out for mercy. Forgive us for not trusting you, Jesus all that you've done for us. Forgive us for withholding love and forgiveness to other people when you've forgiven and loved us of so much worse. Forgive us for doubting. Forgive us for living as if we were orphans when we're not. We want to live for you, Jesus. We pray as we eat and drink today that by your spirit you would strengthen us with your grace. Would you come now and just knock our socks off with how good you are? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.